So picking up at verse 9, it says this. But you, let me put on my glasses first here so I can make sure I can read properly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, we commit our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to you. God, I pray that you would take my mind, my thoughts, and then my words, Lord, let them be reflective of who you are and what you want to be able to communicate and say to us here this morning. So, God, make us ready, willing, and eager to learn, grow, and be transformed by you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. So as I was uh, reading through this, um, one of the things I want for us to think about is basically using a framework, which I've shared with you guys before. Again, this might be new to some of you. Some of you, this might be language uh, that you have been familiar with in the context of our church community before. But it's the uh, imperative indicative uh, paradigm. The idea of what is the writer trying to communicate that is basically being said about you as a person, and then the idea of an imperative, meaning what is he asking of us? So it's a way of just reading the Bible, that should, really reading any type of literature, but especially the Bible, because when we read the Bible, a lot of times we immediately jump to the imperatives, what you need to do for God. And a lot of times Bible pastors or preachers focus on this list of all these things you need to be doing for God. In fact, some of you may have actually lived your Christian life focused upon what you need to be doing for God. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad, but at the end of the day, it is not a sustainable way of life. Because what it will create and produce in you as a disciple is either somebody that thinks that they're doing all these things rightly for God, and then you become arrogant and prideful, and you look with disdain upon everybody who's not doing just what you're doing, or you feel this weight of guilt and shame because you're not doing it. Have you ever felt that? And so how do you overcome that? What, what's a different route to dealing with and thinking through the scriptures? And I'd say, first of all, it's looking at what are the indicatives. And all New Testament writers write like this. They tell you something about who you are, what your life is like, what God has done for you. That's what indicative means. And then the imperative, what we are to do in exchange for this relationship. In other words, not to earn it, but because we've earned it. Because God has given it to us, I should say. Because God has been gracious and shown us his favor, then what should we be doing? And my, my concern is that what Christianity has a tendency of becoming is really nothing more than moralism. And that's a lot of ways. I think a lot of churches in America focus on a moralistic perspective of Christianity. It's all about what you're doing for God, what you're not doing, what you're abstaining from. And somewhere within that, again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having things that we're called to do because the Bible's filled with things like that. But if we lose sight of the plot line, which is the indicatives, what God has done for us, then we turn Christianity into this moralistic 
idea that at some point will either lead to despair or disdain towards everybody else. And that's not Christianity anymore. It's just nothing more than another form of legalism that we've kind of crafted, and we've just thrown the name of Jesus into it. So what I want to try to do this morning is I want to think through this passage that we just read and hopefully bring us back to a, a deep, deep, rich understanding of what this uh, indicative impar- imperative paradigm is and how he's trying to help us to think about it. So hopefully that will make sense. But what I want to think about in terms of a larger, bigger picture, what Peter seems to be focusing on now in this next little section is he seems to be focusing upon how the Christians are to think about living in light of a culture that is basically very hostile towards them. So before we even be go, go into the bigger, broader uh, focus of what I want to look at this morning, I, I want to look at a couple passages. So next slide, we'll take a look at some of these things, that this idea of doing good. This seems to be what Peter is suggesting, um, is that doing good will accomplish something. In other words, good works, good actions. Um, I think I don't need to make an argument for any of you guys um, to ask the bigger question. Have you ever met somebody that claims to follow Jesus and yet their life is not really in sync with that? Well, you know, we, they're a hypocrite. Um, I mean, there's plenty of that, right? It's, it's for wholesale value. Everywhere around us, we can see examples of this. And at some points, one of the reasons why I think a lot of times people walk away from Jesus is they, they look at Christians and they see a, a shallow or a hollow uh, profession of their faith that does not resonate with their, their words and their actions are not in harmony with each other. I think we, we've all seen that. It's easy to identify that. I think one of the reasons why, and this might be offensive to some of you, I think one of the reasons why we're so, it's so easy for us to identify that in other people is because it's you and I. We're, we're always doing the same thing. So be just realize every, you know, what finger you point out there, you've got three pointed back at you. I mean, the fact is, that's all of us. All of us have the tendency to have this disharmony or discord between what we say we are giving ourselves to and how our lives are actually being lived. So with that being said, I, I want to try to re-square, re-anchor all of this idea of doing good in this bigger imperative, indicative paradigm that I was talking about. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what I think and why I think Peter is, is now shifting our mindset to think about doing good, but then anchor that into the bigger indicative. So again, take a look at verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So he talks about your conduct. He's writing to Christians, of course. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds. So again, the idea of good deeds, they, he's, he's suggesting, I want as for you to live in such a way that when the culture around you is hostile towards you, they have nothing against you. All they can simply do is look at you and say, I got good deeds. They're good people. The way they treat others is with dignity and value and respect. They're not racist. They're not hatred. They're not filled with hatred or disdain towards other people. They are kind people. They treat others with dignity, value, and respect. That's what he's suggesting. Take a look at verse 15. He goes on to say, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put the silence the ignorance of foolish people. So again, just within these three verses alone, he's trying to make an argument to say that I want you to live in such a way and act in such a way that people would see your good deeds, your good works, your good actions, doing good. So 
I want to, before we jump into this any further, I'm going to actually kind of ask for audience participation. That's, that's how we're going to do that. It's going to be kind of fun. Um, but what I want to do right now is I want to give a little bit of a context or a backstory. Again, just in case you've not been with us for any length of time, to just understand a little bit about to whom Peter's writing. So again, Peter's writing to a community of people that are following Jesus. They're scattered throughout the ancient Roman Empire, and they're trying to follow Jesus within a, within a culture that's basically hostile towards them. Um, these are people that are devoted to pagan myths, pagan ideologies, pagan practices, um, again, within ancient Rome. And if you're familiar with ancient Roman culture, there were certain practices and um, celebrations that um, the big city, the whole city would come out and celebrate. And here the Christians are basically saying, no, we're not going to offer incense to, to Caesar or to Zeus or to any of these other gods or goddesses because we worship one God. We worship Yahweh God. That's revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. So we will not offer our incense to the altar, to Caesar, to any of these other false deities. And so that put them kind of in this place of like, well, what's wrong with you? And it even goes a little bit further into that. But the way that the Romans would kind of think is that if their city conquered another enemy, you know, they were an oppressive you know, militaristic world superpower. And if for some reason they, they, they lost the battle, they would basically hold the people of the city accountable because they felt like, look, if we all kind of bring together a collective sense of worshiping the, the gods and goddesses of war and whatever else that we need, then, then we will succeed. That was kind of at least the, 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 you know, the barbaric idea behind it. But the point that I would make is this, is that here you got this segment of people that's growing in population. There's still a minority group called the Christians who are saying, we're, we're not going to worship this God. So imagine being a part of a community that goes to battle and you lose, and who, who, who are they going to blame? Christians. And that's exactly what happened. Christians were basically this minority group that was increasingly becoming oppressed within the culture. They were being shut down. They were being pushed out, shoved to the margins. They were being accused. Uh, and again, if you're familiar with Roman history, you know that around this time, there's a guy by the name of Nero, who was the Caesar. Uh, he had not escalated at this particular writing to the level that Caesar would one day come to, but he was kind of in that reign of terror getting up to, to that point. So in other words, Peter's writing a time frame where the hostility towards this minority people group called Christians was, as, was at an all-time high. And so the big question for these Christians was, how do we live faithfully before God in this culture that's more and more pressuring us to walk away from Jesus or more and more to become like them. How do we do that? It's one of the reasons why we've chosen this book, Peter, by the way, to go through is because this is exactly our culture, by the way, in which we live in today, right? Have you guys noticed that? So what I want to do real quick is I want to think about, again, another people group that might be a little bit helpful for us to consider how serious of a problem this is. So for example, um, at around... 70 AD, 100 AD, around there, when Rome was sacked, all right, it was destroyed. The Jews that lived in Rome, that was their homeland, they began to be scattered. In fact, there was a name for it called the Diaspora. The Diaspora was these people were being dispersed all throughout the ancient Roman world, to the north, to the south, to uh, the, the, the continent of Africa, all the way to Europe, and so on and so forth. But what we found is that within this broader diaspora, you had these uh, communities of Jews that were form, forming all around the ancient Roman 
world. Again, as Rome kind of fell as a, as a world empire, what you had were these uh, Jewish communities all around, specifically, let's say, for example, in Eastern Europe. Uh, these were called Ashkenazi Jews or communities of Jewish people. And what you begin to realize is that as these communities were being formed, um, they would stick with each other. They would formulate these little communities where they had their own traditions, their own cultures. And what's really fascinating about, for example, Ashkenazi Jews is they had these unique ways in which they lived. They had a unique identity in which they were identified. So you can walk into, um, you know, let's say, for example, a little village in Ukraine and realize, oh, this is, this is an Ashkenazi Jewish village. You can tell by the, by the smells, by the food that's being cooked, by the type of clothing that people are wearing, the hats that they're wearing. And what happened was, was over time, again, this is probably within the 1800s even, all the way up in, in, in that region, that they were be, be, beginning to basically be uh, singled out and, and threatened and persecuted as people groups all throughout Eastern Europe. And again, if you're familiar with kind of, for example, Zionism, and again, I'm, I don't want to get too far off on the tangents. I want to stay on track. Just think about the question that these Ashkenazi Jews were constantly dealing with was how do we maintain our Jewish identity and our connectedness to the story of Abraham and Moses and the Torah without selling out to the broader community that's around us, that's pressuring us. I mean, it got so bad, there were these uh, things called pogroms, where it was basically a, a form, formulated group of terrorists that would gather around, a lot of times like young thuggish boys, because they have a lot of time on their hand, they're not really sure what to do, so what better to do than to grab pitchforks, pitchforks and fire and torches and go terrorize somebody. So this is what would happen. Pogroms all throughout Eastern Europe would, would arise. So again, to put yourself into their perspective here they are holding on to certain jewish traditions and heritage and legacies that they were trying to be faithful jews and yet the culture around them was growing extraordinarily hostile towards them i mean literally to the point where people were going into these neighborhoods where the jews lived and they were threatening them they were burning their houses they were taking away their 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 uh their goods and burning them uh terrorizing their families killing them raping their wives it was absolutely atrocious this is one of the reasons, and again, all this was 1800s. This is all long before Nazi Germany. And it was around this time that they were, they were faced with this existential question. How do we remain faithful to the inherited legacies that we had? Because if we dress like our culture and our tradition is telling us to dress, then we'll be singled out and we'll be tortured. If we assimilate and become like the broader culture, we might be able to circumvent the challenges and the hardships that we face, but then we lose our tradition. We lose our identity. You guys following this? So if you want a really good uh, depiction of this, it's the, the movie or the uh, stage play, um, Fiddler on the Roof, if you're familiar with that. It's set within, uh, I think it was like Ukraine or Russia or something like that, Tsarist Russia, where, uh, you know, the Tevi, I think, is the main guy, and there's an image of, of a guy playing a fiddle on the roof, right? You guys ever seen that? Anybody not seen that? All right, both of you. All right, hi. Um, you need to see it, all right? So here, the image is, is a guy on a roof playing a fiddle. But the picture is that you're, you're holding on to this tradition, and you're trying to play in this context where it's really dangerous. You fall to one side, you die. You fall to another side, you die, and you stop playing the music. And, and the question then becomes, how do you maintain this status of being fiddled on the roof, um, keeping the tradition that has been given to you? And again, Tevi, if you're familiar with the story, he's got you know young children, daughters, and they're all they're all facing that existential crisis. Dad, we want to get rid of our traditions. Our traditions are causing the problems for us. And I want to suggest to you, 
this is exactly what the Christians were facing that Peter was writing to. They received the gospel. They received the good news. And with that, they received an inheritance from God. They received an entire lifestyle change. A radical transformation came over them. And so now in this moment, they were facing this existential crisis of, of if we remain faithful to Jesus and to the ways in which he's called us to live, then we will consistently find ourselves alienated from the culture, troubled, pressured, maybe even at some point murdered, which is exactly what ends up happening. Or if we assimilate or downplay our faithfulness to Jesus, then we become people that basically abandon what has been given to us. Do you see the tension? This is just like where we live today, guys. We have the same questions. Maybe different circumstances, but same issues are at stake. How do we remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of this? So what I want to suggest, to put it into the context of Peter, how do we maintain doing good? And why is it important to do good as followers of Jesus? Because what's the alternative? The alternative, I think, is either to assimilate and just become part of like the regular, bigger, broader culture around us. Again, there's culture, and then there's subcultures, and there's sub-subcultures, and there's all sorts of fragmentation, so on and so forth, or, uh, you know, group identity and politics and breaking everything down in certain segments of society. But the point that I would make is this. How does the follower of Jesus say, no, my identity is anchored in, in Christ, and I'm part of this family that Jesus brought me into. How do I maintain my faithfulness to that without assimilating or another alternative is to say like zealots for example in the early first century is to say we're going to take up sword and defend our ground and our territory and our turf because this is our right again jesus would say no 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 that's that's not my kingdom my kingdom is not for violent revolt that's not who i am don't do that that's not the way of the kingdom of god so the question is how do we do this and i think peter's answer is do good be people that are filled with goodness. Goodness. Just think about that. Goodness. What's the opposite of goodness? Badness. How many, how many times have, I mean, I think that's the opposite. I mean, how many times have we seen Christians that we just walk away and a bad taste in our mouth? We're like, ah, something is sour. Something is not right. Something is not fitting well within that context. Because it's badness, not goodness. It's a hardness or a harshness. And what Peter's saying, live in such a way that when people see you, they see you doing good. It's a radically different way of living. So what I want to do right now is I want to invite audience participation. And I want to basically take a look at a couple different verses and invite you to do this project with me by asking the question, like, what is the text saying? So next slide. We'll begin to take a look at the indicative. So again, just in case you're wondering, uh, indicative is something that indicates something that is true. In this case, something that's true of those who follow Jesus. Now, again, it's really important. And this is where I think, again, especially sort of a westernized, Americanized Christianity tends to try to cast morality upon a broader culture that are not loyal to Jesus. It's really bad. Christians should not be doing that. When Christians try to bring others that are not loyal to Jesus to say, you got to live this particular way. I would say you got to be careful because what you're selling right now is you're pushing a moralism, not the gospel. A moralism, not the gospel. But the gospel is good news. It's an announcement, something that God has done for you. What I want to do right now is I'm going to look at the indicatives. 
What is God saying about those that are faithful and loyal to Jesus or those that are followers of Jesus? So let's, let's take a look at this. So read the passage again. So let's, I'll, I'll read it right now out loud so you can listen to it. And then I want to, one by one, ask for audience participation. You can say it out when I ask for it. Um, what are some of the things that uh, Peter is saying that are indicatives about you and I that are followers of Jesus? So again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, uh, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, let's, let's talk about this. Um, give me some indicatives that you see in the text. Who wants to go first? You just say it out loud. All right, chosen race, right? You guys all agree with that? First indication, first indicative is that you are, you are a chosen race. I'm not going to ask you what exactly a chosen race is and all that. We've talked about this a little bit before. So chosen race. Secondly, what's the next one? A royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. So we can talk a little about this. What, what was a priesthood? And again, in an Old Testament context, um, who were the priests within the broader culture society? So my question would be maybe to put it another way. Was everybody a priest? Was everybody allowed access to this really unique role? Answer is no. This was an elite class of people. Like, who became priests throughout Israel? I mean, really, realistically, in every ancient culture and civilization, maybe even modern, who gains access to priesthood status? An, an elite group. People that are scholars, and they studied a lot, and they've gone through the processes, and they've done, the, you know, secret handshake, and they've kind of donned the uh, unique, like, special holy underwear, whatever it is that they do. That, that is what's qualified them. And so, who, again, who's Peter talking to? Followers of Jesus. Is he talking to a segment of followers of Jesus or the entire community of followers of Jesus? It's the entire community. So if you're a follower of Jesus, who are you? What are you? You're part, you're a holy priest, priestess. You're part of the whole community. And there's, there's no gender disqualification going on here. You are all part of the priesthood. Okay, next. So number one, we know you are a chosen race. Number two, a royal priesthood. Number three, a what? A holy nation. All right, let's talk about this. Um, there's a lot of discussion in our culture today in regards to identity politics. Who do you belong to? What group do you belong to? Are you left? Are you right? Are you progressive? Are you Republican? Are you conservative? Are you black, white, Asian? What are you? Because what you are based upon your skin color absolutely matters. And everything is going to be diced up into those nice, neat communities. Now, again, I would say as a follower of Jesus, your ethnicity absolutely matters. Absolutely matters. Because in the book of Revelation, we're told that around the throne of God, all nations, tribes, and ethnicities will be represented. So your ethnicity matters. But it's not the ultimate thing that matters. You're given a different identity. Holy nation status identity it's like where paul later would say there's no jew or gentile or male or female he's not he's not washing away the importance of those distinctions but what he is saying is that there's a category above that category that is that's far more significant far more of greater importance you're part of a holy nation status who gets in there again he's saying that those people that are belong to jesus in other words, you have a place of belonging. Uh, let me throw out another word. You're not in exile. You're not lost. Some of you as Christians, you feel lost. 
And I, and I wonder if it's because you've lost the plot line, you feel lost. Again, the, I, I want to just suggest to you, the way to being found and the way to being whole is by reminding ourselves and re-anchoring ourselves to this ancient story called the gospel. You have a place of belonging. You matter. So, all right, we looked at chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What else? What else are indicatives Peter wants us to know? Nice, people for his own possession. All right, so just think about that. People for his own possession. Now, again, that's, this language might be a little bit triggering for some, like you are possessed by God. <laughs> God possesses you. Don't, don't think of it in a bad way. Think of it in a context of you, you belong to somebody. Not in a weird way. Not in a weird possessiveness. Not in a creepy way. In a way that God says, no, I know your name. I know who you are. You're not hidden. You're not lost. You're not in the margins. You're not forgotten. You're not, in the, you're not somebody that I don't know. You are somebody that belongs to me. You have a place in my presence. Think about this. Um, I, was, I was considering this a few weeks ago that when you look at the, the, the main corpus, I love history, by the way, uh, but the main corpus of history that you oftentimes read is that you've heard the phrase, I'm sure, history is written by the what? By the winners? Have you heard that? The conquerors? History is typically written by the winners or the conquerors. I would like to suggest to you that's probably true, and I think in most cases, except the Bible. Just follow my train of thought here. Who wrote the Bible? Who were these people that wrote Scripture? Again, it's a collection of you know, 66 books written by multiple authors over hundreds of years on different continents, but all telling a unified story about God's redemption through Jesus. It's like a library of books. But when you look at the story of the Bible, the majority of the people writing this stuff, they were part of an oppressed, marginalized people group. And yet their story remains. That's who the Jews were. Don't think of Jews in modern-day Zionism today. Think of Jews in the context where they were. They were marginalized. They had no voice. They were shoved off. They were forsaken, forgotten. They were constantly feeling as if we are the tail of the entire nations of this you know, dogged state of everybody taking advantage of us. That's who we are. But God's saying, no, no, that's not who you are. And then it goes on ultimately into the life of those that begin to follow Jesus. Again, Christians in the first early Roman Empire, they were shoved off to the margins. They were just like Tevia in fill on the roof. They were trying to ask this question, how do we survive within the midst of the culture that's very hostile towards us, that's constantly trying to erase our identity? And what Scripture is teaching us is that, no, you have a place. You matter to the one opinion in the entire universe that matters. All right, let's uh, take a look at any other ones. What else? So we looked at again. I'll go repeat. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position. Anything else? So, yeah, who proclaim excellencies, correct? Uh, who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? So, again, who are we? Who are we? We are people that were called out of darkness, which, which means that, again, if you play this out, you were somebody that lived in darkness at once, and yet Jesus reached into that darkness, pulled you out of that darkness, and now you're different, which means that there is a darkness, and there is a salvation from that darkness, which means that the darkness that you may be experiencing right now in your life doesn't have to be eternal. It doesn't have to be forever. 
there's a Savior that will pull you out of that darkness and rescue you. This is what, exactly what Peter's saying. All right, verse 10, I'll just throw this out. I think verse 10 is kind of like a summary of what he just said before, so I'll read it. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's in light of this that then Peter prefaces all of this, whereby he's then going to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Then he goes on to say, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's all this, all this question on whether or not, what does it mean on the day of visitation? Some have suggested that maybe when God visits these people that are not followers of Jesus and rescues them from their own darkness. Others have suggested that maybe it's a reference to the time when Jesus will come again and establish his kingdom and his true light will fully dawn and uh, justice will be renewed as the noonday and God will establish his kingdom will fully come to earth and all will be saved and rescued. And he's saying, suggesting that maybe on that day, as they see your good deeds, uh, those that have rejected you and resisted you and shunned you actually will, in light of that day, realize what they were actually in opposition against. Not just people, but God. And they will awake with that awareness of that. Um, again, the point that I would make is this, is that what I think Peter wants for us to understand is that regardless of how you would interpret that, my point would be is do good, do good. What's the framework that builds that goodness? Knowing who you are. Why does Peter do this? And I want to end with some just final thoughts. Next slide. Um, why does he do this? I think one of the reasons why Peter is wanting to anchor these, to whom he's writing, their identity in this understanding of who God has called them to be is at least for two reasons. Number one, forgetfulness. Every human being, we are all prone towards like spiritual amnesia. We're all prone to forget stuff. All of us. Again, even for me, I've been studying the Bible. In fact, I would probably say I've studied the Bible more than any other book in my entire life, throughout my entire life, since I was 16. I know the Bible fairly well, but I also, and I'm not saying that as a boast, I'm saying that as like, I, I, there's still so much I just don't know. I mean, every time I reread scripture, reread passages of scripture, I'm just like, whoa, I didn't even see that before. And I've been doing this for a long time. The point that I'd make is that I don't think you ever, ever get to a place of mastery over the Bible. That's really my, my big point. The big E in the I chart. I will never get to a point of mastery. But what I will suggest is that there are times where I read something and I've, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've read this so many times. I'm very familiar with this passage. But it hits me in a new way because I realize I forgot that. I forgot that. We're all prone towards forgetfulness. Number two, I think because of the force of the host culture around us. The forcefulness of the host culture around us that's consistently trying to enforce its influences upon us. And I've said this before, that we live in a culture that is not benign. It's deeply evangelical when it comes to its message. Would you agree with that? It's deeply evangelistic. It wants to proclaim and preach from the rooftop its secular message. And I would suggest, and it's in everything you watch, every Netflix show you binge watch, everything around us, it is literally the water we swim in, the air we breathe, the culture that's ubiquitous. And if you are not aware of it, and if you are consist consistently brokering in forgetfulness, then at some point we will just be swept away by the forcefulness, the sheer forcefulness of the culture around us. 
This is why I think Peter's saying, don't forget who you are and the mission that God has called you to. So in closing, our identity ultimately is a gift from God which frees us from every other frail and hollow identity while reshaping every other aspect of our lives. And this is where Peter is going to take the rest of the book by framing that concept. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's how you keep reminded and keep anchored, keep tethered to this gospel, this good news of what God has done for you. Here's how you keep yourself walking in a way that is doing good and not succumbing to the culture around us, not washing away your identity, not losing the sense of who you are, but by remaining faithful to the one who is faithful to you. Because it's a very real danger, especially in our culture, that's consistently trying to reshape us according to its values. My hope for you guys, that you are here this morning, you are a follower of Jesus, that you would be re-reminded of the incredible good news of what God has brought you into. He loves you. You have a place. You have value. You have dignity. You have respect. And therefore, as a result of that, we are invited to live in such a way that repeats or shares that same value, dignity, and respect to every other human being that bears his image. But secondly, I would also just like to say to those of you that might not be Christians, or maybe you're on the fence, and you're on the fence on the roof, but you're actually sliding on one way or the next. You are in danger of falling away from this goodness of God. My hope would be that you would recognize every other identity that we can either craft for ourselves or download from Instagram or somehow try to pin our hopes to by way of Pinterest. The fact of the matter is every other identity is frail and has an expiration date. It will let you down. And when it lets you down, you will be required, based upon the cultural system, to find a new identity. And when that one fails you, you'll be required to find a new identity. And when that one fails you, on repeat, over it. And all I'm saying is that that path is exhausting. And it's to you, Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary, filled with anxiety, over the course of this world. And come to me and I will give you rest. The hope that Jesus offers is a hope of rest. So as we close right now, I want to invite you to turn your heart to Jesus. In fact, I'm going to just have us close right now as we stand. And I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to have Jonah and Val come on up where they are. They're going to lead us into a, just a little song. And if you would like to partake of communion, we have some communion elements up in the front or in the back. You're more than welcome to go ahead and take one of the little communion elements. Let's all stand and uh, go ahead and take one of those, and we will partake together. So I'm going to pray for us right now. We'll partake together of communion at the end of the song, and then we'll dismiss you all to either go get some food or join us immediately afterwards in the other room for the little welcome to Calvary. So, Jesus, right now, we come to you. And wherever you're at right now, guys, I just invite you to maybe close your eyes, tune your heart, your mind, your thoughts to the hope that's in Jesus. And I don't know what your relationship has been like with Jesus. Maybe it's not been very good. Maybe it's been rocky. Maybe there's been a desire in your heart for being made right with God, but you're not really sure even how to get there. 
what I would invite you to just realize, like, God has already done all of that. He's walked towards you. He's taken the initial step to and in your direction. All that's left for you is to respond to him, to say, yes, Lord. God, receive my heart. Receive my ways. As broken, as crooked, as defiled, as messed up, as anxiety-laden they are, lay them at your feet. Just confess whatever it is that you need to before him right now. And ask him to wash you and cleanse you.